We call that the Paletta maneuver. It's like the hero's journey. First, but, first the refusal of the gain. Mm-hmm. The refusal of the gain is the most exciting chapter. <laughs> Nathan, do you want to mess with the gain? No, Not I don't. Good. I don't want to hear anything. Not a thing. Cut to ten minutes later. Why can't I hear anything? <laughs> My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Nathan, you and I are about to have a conversation. What do you think it's going to turn out to have been about? Thanks to the structures that we've set up for ourselves, I can reasonably expect this to be about emergence and how to think about and grapple with the unexpected properties of your game design. Here's a really easy question for you. I love easy questions. Can you design for emergence? You lied to me. You said this was an easy question. Yes, you can, but you will always, always, always fail. (laughs) See? Easy. Um, I think I know what you mean, but we should probably go ahead and unpack that a little. Yeah, that's a good question, and I I think... I like the spot that it puts a designer on to think about it that way because the, the the thing is you can, to a certain extent, design, I should more say, not for emergence, but toward emergence. Mm-hmm. But if you designed for it specifically so that a particular thing would happen, that is not what we describe as emergent. So when we say emergence, we're talking about a behavior or a situation or set of interacting behaviors that arise out of a game that in a way, don't seem to come from anything in particular, right? They're not the, when I do a thing, I get an experience point. That's not, neither of those are, are emergent in the sense that in order to get experience points, I, I know I need to do things. And, and when I do things, I know I'll get experience points. Right. But over the course of the game, if you re- realize that, oh, there's five different ways to get experience and over our entire campaign, year-long campaign of this game, players have only ever done four of them. The fact that no one did that fifth thing may be an emergent behavior that was not telegraphed by the by the game or and that might be designed into the game. Like that's making some some comment or point or Right. It's, its purpose isn't actually to be used, its purpose is to be listed with the other four. Right. Which is I don't, I don't, I don't want to say tricky, it's a little slippery, mm-hmm. but it's doable. Yeah. It serves a purpose. Or that or that might be, oh, the rest of what this game is providing is actually steering everyone away from the fifth option. The other four are more compelling in every circumstance, which may be an unintentionally emergent feature of the game. How do, how do you consider, Nathan, the difference between something that is... All right, so if emergence is to, to a certain degree unforeseeable or it is not truly emergent, if you, sure. if you foresaw it and designed for it, it didn't emerge. Or if you reacted to its emergence, mm-hmm. if you create a bucket to catch the emergence... Mm-hmm. Well, you're still interacting with it, but like the, yeah. the language is a little slippery, right? Yeah, like yeah. there's there, there's an element of design where you don't necessarily have all of your cards on the table, and that's not because you're trying to fool people. Though there's, it might be like that can be a design project to create a game where things happen that you knew are going to happen, but you want the players to be surprised. But it's more like the it, it's about creating that delight, right? We've talked before about surprises that are welcome or unwelcome and um, being satisfied or unsatisfied. So like in order to, to create a satisfying surprise, a lot of the times that comes out of these properties that emerge out of the game in play that aren't necessarily listed procedurally, like do this, do this, do this, because then it's not a surprise for the player. Right. But the designer was, was designing for that experience. 
So I think that is kind of what I'm trying to capture with the word emergent and intentional or unintentional. Right. Because I think you're right that there's stuff that happens that was completely not on the designer's mind and that are nonetheless delightful. Yeah. And those would be great emergent properties of design. But are you responsible for them as the designer? I mean, I say yes, because you designed the rest of the game. But... It, it, that's Maybe always not. that's always such a and I hope I hope it's not a question that we that we as a as a hobby or industry or a art form definitively answer much the same way that that we wrestle with other media have have lots of their own related questions death of the author type questions mm-hmm. but one of the things to me about emergence is that I, I kind of walk around with two similar but competing definitions of emergence um, in my head and one of them is that emergence has to arise from interactions which is what makes them emergent. If it right. is a thing, if it is one thing that, that causes the thing to happen and I just didn't know that was going to happen, mm-hmm. that might just be an incomplete design. Sure. But if it's the interaction it's, of two things mm-hmm. and, 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 and the, the most, the biggest, I think most reliable example in RPGs is the interaction with a system that is stable and a player base that is creative and participating in the rendering and appreciation and adjudication of that system emergent behaviors will always arise mm-hmm. that might be as simple as we discovered after uh, this is this is a fictional example but imagine if you will that after 4 years of D&D we discovered that only 3% of players play bards mm-hmm. right that's data and it's not exactly it's kind of an emergent non-behavior but it's sort of an emergent piece of information we have so why what was it that we did that caused so few people to play bards we might go okay well we didn't design it so that nobody would play bards Right, they're in the game. They're in the game, yeah. present. But we did we made choices that caused this thing to happen that we did not foresee. Mm-hmm. Now that could that's emergent data, but it's not necessarily emergence in a gameplay sense because it's actually something that's not happening. But if the notion were, for example, that everybody who ta- who plays a fighter takes one of these two feats, every fighter we find out in the game, right? Let's say we have that data somehow. There might be an emergent behavior, which is that now we have the emergent fact that in the core D and D setting. 100% of fighters in the fiction would be expected to have one of these two feats, for example, mm-hmm. right? Sure. That's kind of a, a heavy-handed or a pretty kludgy example, but of emergence, which is something that it wasn't that it was designed to have those two feats be mandatory, mm-hmm. but they emerged as somewhat mandatory. Now, that gets more into when you get into fictional emergence of what of behavior, character choices, and player choices, and where they sync up and where they don't. But that all vies, again, with the notion of, of the, the competing definition of emergence that I have. I have, I have two examples here, Great. which might be a little more concrete. One is of some emergent behavior, and another is of how this can be useful more than just kind of thinking about con- trying to conceptualize it. So the first is, so in Worldwide Wrestling, one of, the, one of the kinds of wrestlers you can play is the jobber, and the jobber's job is to lose matches and make other wrestlers look good in so doing. They're mechanically actually slightly better, like they have slightly better stats because... They are full-time losers, fictionally. So that's kind of like a little element of balance in there and makes them a little more compelling to play. Uh, and the, the kinds of people that play the job are, are people who enjoy putting other people in the spotlight, like playing with that role where your entire job is to fail, but make it look good and make it work in the larger narrative and all that stuff. That game also has a, a style of match called the Regal Wrangle, which is representing the, the Royal Rumble match, uh, which is basically where you have a bunch of wrestlers that all go after each other um, kind of in stages, and then everyone's in the ring, and there's a big, uh, crazy, over-the-top rope battle royal, and one person is left standing, and they win 
the Battle Royal. And the rules of that are more player-directed than some of the other matches where a lot can happen that's mechanically mediated about who gets eliminated and when. And it's not all judgment calls because most of the other stuff is judgment calls. So what has happened in, I'd say, at least three out of four of Regal Wrangle matches with jobbers in them that I have ran or heard about is that the jobber, who literally cannot be booked intentionally to win a match, ends up winning the match. Because the other players feel like they, the, the, the sympathetic nature of the jobber means that everyone else is like, oh, here's the one place that we can make this person shine because it's so chaotic and random and, and we have the mechanical power to make this happen where in other parts of the game we don't. And that surprised me in a way because like I never thought about it. Like I just never thought about it. Like I was never like, huh, I wonder which kind of character is going to win this kind of match the most over a year and a half of play. It's just a question that like, why would I think about that? Right. Turns out Jabra wins a lot if they're present in the match. And if the, the you know, they've had an opportunity to, to, to put some other people over earlier in the game. And it makes sense, right? Like you can kind of see the, the the different parts of the game kind of pushing against each other with kind of the the social the social dynamic that they're kind of meant to engender. And there's kind of a classic sports narrative in there, right? The dog mm-hmm. against all odds or against all expectations, triumphing it, yeah, right, that kind of thing. So that's great, and I think that would be underserved by trying to put some kind of structure or restriction in the rules about when this kind of character is in this kind of match, they are going to win because they are the underdog and this and this and this. I could do that, but why would I when it happens emergently? So that's all kind of leading into where this idea of of emergent properties, I think has a lot of value as a designer, is in the evaluation process and which can start in early reading, can start in playtesting. I think really shines when you are able to play the game with some people, some of the same people a little bit. So you can kind of see uh, where you can balance out what's happening in the game against like people's personalities and, and what they like in games and that kind of thing. As a designer, when you see something happening over and over, you can recognize that and be like, oh, this is a, this is a, a feature of the game. I'm going to enhance it or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cultivate it mm-hmm. because it's great and I want it to keep happening. Or you can say, oh, no one picks that fifth option ever, ever. Maybe I should just get rid of it because what's the point of having it if I, it's never going to impact play? So that happens a lot with moves. With when when I'm writing new gimmicks for the wrestling game, I come up with a bunch of cool moves that I think are neat. It goes out into the world. Some people play it, or I run it at conventions. Some people play it, and this of the of these four moves, this one just no one ever plays it. No one ever picks it. Like on its face, maybe it's cool enough, but in context of all the other stuff on the sheet and all this other stuff going on in the game, it's never compelling enough for someone to pick it. So it's time to give it the axe and maybe use that idea later. I've done a lot of that or an idea that was on one sheet. I use in a later one when I'm, when I'm looking for something to fill it out. Uh, or if it's a good idea, again, on its face, but it doesn't work with the rest of the stuff. But you can really tighten up a lot of things if you have the opportunity and ability to see what people are attracted to and what's generating fun play and what's kind of generating like treadmill kind of, right. kind of play. And before we follow that too far into playtesting, which is obviously something that will relate to emergence in a big way. Yeah. The two pronged question that I've got for you, especially with that, that's a terrific example. And I remember that we talked about this one before mm-hmm. about the jobber and worldwide wrestling, yeah. but is this the relationship between emergence and intentionality is one thing. Mm-hmm. And the, and the relationship between emergence and foresight slash hindsight is another thing. It is possible to discover a happy emergence, which was unintentional 
and in hindsight is very clear how it happened. Right. It is possible to have emergence, which is unwelcome, mm-hmm. and is still, in hindsight, unclear why it keeps happening. Yes. Right? So there's a question of player intentionality and designer intentionality. Mm-hmm. There's a question of game design foresight versus systems interaction hindsight. When you look back and go, oh, of course. And this is actually one of the things that I think the Pirate of the Apocalypse games are fascinating about is in the way in which they emerge, not just based on the mechanical effective rules, but the way they are stated, which is to say there mm-hmm. are, I think in a lot of Pirate by the Apocalypse games I've seen, playbooks that are really cool in secret that are like, you go, sure. oh, it's not, it's not written or illustrated in a way that makes me realize how cool it is. And sometimes that's by design and sometimes it is not. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a situation where somebody goes, have you ever played the ghost in Urban Shadows? They're awesome. I love playing the ghost. And, and as I, for example, my experience playing a ghost in Urban Shadows was terrific. And what I discovered mm-hmm. was in my interactions, this isn't entirely emergent because it's one session, but at a convention was, I'm like, okay, so this, this class is really good at kingmaking. I can end certain conflicts in the way that I think is dramatically suitable, but I will never be the winner, mm-hmm. at least in the, in the circumstances I was in. But now that's not exactly emergent because that's one emergent example. It's anecdotal. But it creates a situation where that was not obvious on the face of the ghost and the text of the ghost and the, and the way the moves are written, that that's exactly what it would be good at. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference between intentionality and effect, which is to say, I don't know, for example, if the ghost is intentionally kind of disguised that way or sure. not, but there's a point when, 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 the, when the game hits the table at the end in which the difference becomes, I don't want to say, it's not entirely moot, but it matters less than it does during the design process. Because if somebody doesn't pick a move because they don't know how awesome it is because the way it's written doesn't mm-hmm. give anybody the idea that it's useful to, ta- to, to use it, Right. that is the same as it being badly written in, well, in its effect. I think one, one valuable thing to do because I know I do this, is you're writing something, whether it's a move or a, or a class or a feat or an adventure. A spell or, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. whatever. Usually, a little, yeah, usually a little more atomic, like a feat or a spell, not so much an entire adventure. You get really excited about it. You write down all the cool stuff and you figure it out, make sure it works the way you want it to work. But then that, that critical step of going back and being like, have I, have I made it clear why someone would want to take this on its face? Right. Because that's a choice. Like I, like you're saying, I think it can be done accidentally. You can not realize it, or you can just forget to telegraph it. But ideally, it's a choice whether you're saying, this is why being the ghost is great. Right. They are a kingmaker. Or whether the design decision is, when people play the ghost, they'll find out that they're the kingmaker. Right. And right. that's and that's a, a, a revelation that I want people to have. Right, the finding out is part of the is what the design is intending to accomplish. Right, right. So without trying to get into like as a player whether whether you can tell if it's intentional or not, like that's kind of right. That kind of matters less. Right. Than, I mean, it may matter. It can mm-hmm. matter zero, and it approaches zero because most players, in my experience, both practically are going to be like, I don't know what the intention was. I know what it's doing. Right. And also, the intention doesn't change. If the intention doesn't change what it's doing, then then the intention has. Mm-hmm. A value approaching zero. Yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, the, the, the designer is dead at that point. <laughs> right. Uh, but as that predeceased designer, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the, what ends up emerging at the table often is what you want out of it. I want the ghost to be a kingmaker. Mm-hmm. I'm going to design it in this way so it has all these, these things that when you put them together with how the other characters work, they are a kingmaker. Right. And I want them to discover that in play. So I'm not going to like call that out. That's one design path without having an ability that says kingmaker. Right. 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 That's another design path where you're like, the ghost 
does this. I'm going to write it right under its name so everyone knows it does this. And it's going to have a move that says Kingmaker. Maker of Kings. <laughs> right, Maker of Kings. Uh, and it's going to have a rule about how it can never come out the best in any situation. It, it can only say who's going to come out the best. That's actually, I right. want to see a move where, where you roll two less than the best roll at the table in a move. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that emergence is simultaneously two different things. It encompasses two different things that are in, in part related by their intentionality and in part separate entirely because of intentionality, which is mm-hmm. to say that emergence emerges whether you mean for it to or not. Right. So if, if you mean for it to, that's great. And that's what I mean when you say it, when I say that you can have a bucket to catch the emergence. Mm-hmm. If you design it so that things that emerge are still within theme or are still within the, the attitude or the tenor, the feeling, the vibe, the subject matter mm-hmm. of the game, that's great. Because now you've designed the game in such a way that it's big enough to contains mm-hmm. a lot of emergent behavior so that the game doesn't fly apart in RPG st- style. It, another very like straightforward example, I think, is uh, going back to the example of Mortal Coil, mm. where because of how that game works, magic is always dangerous. Right. Right. And, and that fact is conveyed through the rules about how you establish magical facts and the counter points to them. Another way to say magic is dangerous is when you cast a spell, you take this much damage. Right. Right. I would argue that the moral coil thing is the overarching theme of this dangerous but nonetheless compelling Mm -hmm. world and this power that you have that you kind of have to use even if you don't really want it because you know it's not going to be exactly what you want, but you don't have any choice. And it plays on that notion of arcane being both magical, but also that that interlocking set of rules that is developing. Yeah, And like it's not always knowable, like what you want isn't always what you're going to get. While it's all very clearly telegraphed by how the rules work, there's an emergent world that's built that's consistent from game to game right. by the interaction of the rules and the structure and the setting and the system. And that's an example, right, where I guess what I'm getting at with, with foresight and hindsight, which is that if it's it's also about who, it's emergent to whom, mm-hmm. right? So when a player discovers that the ghost is a kingmaker, discovers that, wow, every one of these magic systems is dangerous, has this cost-benefit situation that puts me at risk, mm-hmm. and that's happening to such an extent that I can't assume it's by accident. Mm-hmm. And whether it was, is again, secondary to the fact that it's happening. Who's discovering? And if the notion is that you as a designer are discovering everything at the same time as your players, then your design is probably pretty early in its life. Yeah. Because you want to be able to have, and this is again where we intersect playtesting a little bit, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole yet. Players discover that in Mortal Coil, all magic has a danger. That's emergent to the player. Mm. But it was emergent to the designer earlier, Mm. let's say, for example, that Brendan says, okay, great. So now that I've seen that, that, that it is accomplishing that or that that is emerging despite my design, I'm going to harness it. I'm, right. I, I'm assuming he did it completely by design because Brendan's a very yeah. good designer. But let's say, for example, mm-hmm. that he set out to design two of them that weren't dangerous well, and they were dangerous too. And he goes, well, mm-hmm. cool then. Then the game is on theme. Uh, a counterexample is a game by Paul Sega of My Life with Master and, and the Clay That Woke called Acts of Evil, where you play cultists basically kind of in this epic spanning saga of trying to to bring whatever your kind of cult goals are to fruition. And the design intention of that game was that you end up playing the bad guys in the story mm-hmm. and you kind of play through the entire game and realize that the good guys are all these other characters that you were kind of like trying to, to get to do what you wanted and stuff like that. I was in playtesting forever and forever and I've, I playtested a version of it and I've talked to Paul about it and he eventually shelved it and he said, the thing is, I got it working mechanically. Like the mechanics did what I wanted. They produced the correct results. Right. 
But the correct results were, this is not a fun game to play. Like the, the emergent experience of play was not one that people enjoyed, even though it was like all the, all the elements were all clicking and everything was working together right. the way that, it was, that he wanted it to. Turns out that the goal of the game was to not have fun. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, uh, maybe it goes on. So, so, it, so it's on the shelf as far as I know. Well, that, that's uh, an example to me of a great example of two things that I've learned about emergence. And again, it has to do with a little bit of the perspective on emergence, who's doing the discovering. But for example, mm -hmm. uh, the emergence during the initial D20 boom, when you would start taking spells from one book, from one company and one set of designers and spells from another book, from another company, another set of designers and feats from a third company and a different set of designers and be like, well, if you put these together, characters become unbeatable. What, what is this bull? And you go, well, part of it is because they were all designed in the same week on different continents right. without any communication with each other. Yeah, they're all siloed. They're all siloed yeah. and they come out. Or there's a great example I just heard the other day from Pathfinder, which I don't know if it's using third party stuff or not. But for example, is a spell that causes people who are lawful good to get a bonus. Okay, cool. Hmm. Somebody said, well, we just realized two things. One was that our group was, we have three lawful good paladins in our group. So this one casting of a spell increased our damage output by a gazillion. Right. And that my character's celestial warhorse, who is also lawful good and a celestial and a warhorse, became the most capable fighter in the party <laughs> when the spell was cast. Hmm. Well, we have three lawful good paladins, so we each prepare that spell and we cast it three times and every encounter is over. There's an emergence that was not foreseen and was not by design, but is nonetheless genuinely emergent, right. in which these interaction of choices create a result that is temporarily desirable, but long-term undesirable, sure. which and, is fun once or whatever. And that, yeah, and that kind of gets into the, the question of how much optimization, how much player skill in playing the game, the right. mechanical game, is your game designed to accommodate? A little kind of quiet, it wasn't a rule, but it was a guideline that I used to use for di for disciplines at, at Vampire, which was that especially for bloodlines, all disciplines were not equal. They couldn't be equal because there were only so many ways to riff on the rules. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have, to, so, so we would get circumstantial to make, well, this one is more powerful if you can set stuff up for yourself. This one is weaker if you can't get circumstances the way you want it to be, whatever. And it's so narratively dependent that mm -hmm. one campaign is so different from another campaign. But the rule that I had was if I can't tell by reading it that this power is big in this area, then it has to be rewritten. Because it's okay to say th this vampire, the third Friday of every month, can just destroy other vampires. Mm. But if I don't realize from reading it that, that's, that I'm putting my campaign at jeopardy by allowing this in the game, because of course the thing is that if a bloodline doesn't come up in the campaign, it's just not present in my city, we don't worry about it. So you could take the whole thing as a package and allow it. Or you could disassemble it and atomize it and make it into new bloodlines, that kind of thing. New prestige classes, new feats, all these kind of things work the same way. That was my way of avoiding accidental negative emergence for a player base where mm. they say, I bought this because of the the flavor of it and because I really dug the art and I dug the vibe of it. And then I let a player play it and then my campaign is ruined. It's over. We, it, they killed everybody. Right. You go, okay, well, see, that's that's a problem that was emergent to the player. Mm. And it's like, if I knew that was going to happen and I let it out, that's my fault. Yeah. If I didn't know that was going to happen and I let it out, still my fault. So... I might as well know it's going to happen and then flag it accordingly yeah. so that nobody accidentally does that to their game. There's a level of like how complicated your game is in right. the sense of like how many moving parts there are. Right. Where there are more and more opportunities for both positive and unwanted emergence, the more and more moving parts there are. Exactly. Yeah. But also those moving parts can be kind of, you can kind of... Uh, Some are more predictable than others. Yeah. And you can also kind of determine the how yeah. the range, how much yeah. they matter, basically. Yeah. Like in D&D, stuff that gives you extra attacks, right? Almost always a big it's, deal. Yeah. Or stuff that gives you extra turns. Always a big deal. Right. So stuff, so that might bear a little more like upfront. Let's make sure to analyze 
the powers that give you extra turns and extra attacks, you might prioritize that over what lets you change your alignment at will. Right. Because like in some situations, maybe that will matter, like your lawful good party. Right. But overall... And campaign to campaign, are we really using alignment? Like most right. campaigns are using hit points. But right. not everybody's using alignment the same way or whatever. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So you can prioritize. So I think for your game, you have the best sense of what's most important to kind of keep an eye on and see what's going to have, what's going to mix with other elements and, and what's going to have the most potential to either throw stuff off the rails or to create these exciting emergent surprises and it's and it's important to communicate to the players who are collaborators after the fact and that they can't design the game but are playing it to understand what is important so that they don't accidentally say oh i let this you know i I let people change their alignment without realizing that that was going to throw the whole game out of whack right. or whatever, right? So you want to, I mean, and you can do it, over, you can do it completely overtly and just say the most important stat in this game is, is your character level or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Or you can make it clear by repetition. And I mean, there's artful ways to do it. Or there's an example you're using before about when the designer designs it so that that emergence is a moment of delight for the player. Mm-hmm which is, to me, an ongoing and very exciting and energetic, almost electric place in RPG design and story game design. And in some ways, and I've never really thought about this before now, I would look forward, frankly, to the long convention argument somewhere about whether or not this is one of the defining differences between this or that or the third label on how we call these games. But the notion is this. All fiction, intentionally or otherwise, is emergent in this way. The storyteller knows how it ends, even if they don't know when they're writing it. They know when they're done and when it goes to you. Right. They have designed it so that if you say, I knew this guy was going to die the whole time. I knew this guy was the villain the whole time. And if the author's intent was good, you're supposed to. Have you read, have you read the final chapter yet? No. Well, read the final chapter. Hmm. Or if they say, oh, darn it, I wanted you to be surprised in chapter 10. Right? Those are great examples of how misdirection is a part of artifice. Anytime mm-hmm. you want somebody to feel a, th- a, a certain way over a given period of time, jokes do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Set up embellishment punchline, set up punchline just punchline, right? These are choices that we make so that somebody will have that experience of surprise and delight or satisfied delight or whatever it is at the moment that we want them to have it. And one of the reasons that some books are as long as they are, some movies are as long or as short as they are, whatever it is, is because the best way to get somebody to feel the impact of this character's betrayal after 90 minutes is to have is to set them up as a friend for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. So some of these techniques are done very similarly and are done and are borrowed from in the, in the text of RPGs and story games. Sometimes they're borrowed from haphazardly sometimes they're borrowed from with great skill and in the wrong place sometimes they are borrowed from perfectly and deployed magnificently this is actually another example to me where apocalypse world versus many other powered by the apocalypse games is really Mm -hmm. interesting because moves are so plain language in so many ways not entirely and depends on the game a little bit but apocalypse world for me as an example if that were the second powered by the apocalypse game would be a a home run and all the problems i have with it are the fact that i was trying to learn the system and that setting at the same time right for a book that doesn't exactly have an arc to it but has an experience to it Mm -hmm that is presenting itself in a way so that certain things are emergent to the reader and then to the player, but that the reader and the player experience are much more in sync than a lot of RPGs. Mm -hmm. And that, in other words, it doesn't tell you, I mean, it tells you outright that if you do all this stuff in the first session, the second session, the third session, you'll start to notice the following things. Instead of waiting for you to notice the following things. Yeah, it kind of telegraphs like, here's what you're going to see after the first session. It lets you in on it. Yeah. Yeah, in a way that's really great. You're eventually going to need to do... around. Sure, yeah. (laughs) That's, uh, I found some of that stuff out after I had already made up my mind about sections that I had misread, or or not misread, but misordered. Mm. And that's an example where it's not a novel. And again, I don't think Apocalypse World is actually misassembled at all. 
I think that there are there are RPGs that absolutely are that, that present themselves and focus on the fiction in a way that says I'm going to write this and I know we had it at Vampire we used to get submissions for or, or first drafts that were like this all the time I'm going to write this power in a way that is really evocative right and I'm going to go okay but I'm still unclear on what it does right and they say oh but when you see it in play you'll see and I go except that in a game like The World of Darkness if I don't understand what it does that's not going to happen because, yeah, no because one's gonna, nobody's going to describe it in a way that's going to make it clear what you what right. is supposed to happen. Well, I think a lot of people have had experience with uh, a game that presents some kind of fictional content, whether it's written fiction or a, or a illustration or something. Right. And then when you try to do that with the game <laughs> rules, you can't. Right. You have this awesome illustration of a wizard wearing armor. And then you're like, oh, right, wizards, but wizards can't, right. I can't play that guy because wizards can't wear armor. So I can't actually play Gandalf in this game because I can't, can't, use, can't a use a sword. <laughs> right. And a lot of that is an artifact of, of the game is written by someone who isn't in the same loop as the person who's commissioning the art. In, in that case, yeah. In yeah. Like in that yeah. particular case, a lot of like fantasy games, like that's why. Yeah. It's not because the, the art director was trying to mess with you. No, absolutely. You know? I think more often than that, it has to do with the realistic com- There's a pragmatic reason. Yeah, the realistic constraints of production are more often the reasons, which is to say mm. that this book has to go to press on or Thursday, like, so I can't revise mm. the, all, every discipline again for the 15th time. Right. Or whatever, yeah. Creating emergence or designing for emergence or trying to put the, that, that bucket ready to catch the thing that you think is going to be poured out. Right. right? The actual practical way to achieve that is how you're ordering and prioritizing and linking all these other things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Your characters, the reward cycles, how the system is presented and uh, how the setting is presented, how the moment-to-moment play feeds back into character growth, how the longer-term arc of play is brought to the table and interacts with all the other elements. Each of those relationships of game design elements creates the opportunity for emergent properties. This might be a function of experience or it might be a function of both of design and of play mm-hmm. uh, or a function of just repetition of going through your design and play testing and trying out different things and seeing what happens and what doesn't. But you can get better at seeing what's most likely to emerge out of different design elements. I think a lot of designers who, who have who've done a couple projects have the experience of I was surprised by what happened in my first one in a good way because it's what I wanted. It was in the spirit of the game. It's it's it was it was good stuff. Right. But I did not think it was going to happen before it happened. And then when you get to your third, fourth, fifth project, you do this kind of transition into I'm pretty sure this is what's going to happen. Let's find out. Right. As opposed to all right, let's play the game. Oh, that happened. Great. Or oh, oh, I need to change something because this isn't what I want. Right. It's more, you're, you're almost able to specifically focus on, I want this to happen. And I think this is what's going to make it happen. Let me see if it does or, or if it does not. And if it does not, then I think it's these elements that are the problem. Right. And that's a, that's a thing that I think you can get better at both just by doing more games, but also by being mindful about your design process and your revision process. Absolutely. So that you're paying attention to that kind of stuff as early as possible. It's, it's in part about setting up expectations for you and the players so that they have the right expectations about what is going to happen, but also mm-hmm. so that you don't establish expectations that something's going to happen that isn't going to happen. Right. You don't want to disappoint people. Yeah. And, well, and you don't want necessarily to find out that 
something that you didn't anticipate is the most fun part of the game. And that partially mm. comes from, again, having your most, having your awareness of the game mm. be as high as possible, which includes, like you say, mindfulness for sure. It has to do with the drafting and redrafting of a game. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that whole process is not just about the number of games you do, but of course, the number of iterations that you do in a game, which is to say the first time you play it and you find out, wow, the combat is no fun, or wow, this game motivates the players to be terrible people, or whatever it is. Mm. And then you, yeah, like you say, you revise to kind of steer towards, to have the game, you know what it is? It's less about having, it's almost like about face so the game is facing in the direction mm-hmm. and looking and considering stuff that you want it to. And then when they start playing, they're moving in that direction. I will say that sometimes when something comes up, and you're like, wow, I didn't mean for that to happen, but it's great. Well, that's the best. <laughs> that's when it's time to throw, it, throw a net over it mm-hmm. and, and pull it back so that you can get the, the good juice out of it. Right. So you um, can keep that as part of the game. Yeah, yeah. Don't let that float away. Make it work for you. Right. Exactly. Um, and it's sometimes where we talk about where we find out that the game is about something we didn't know it was going to be about, right. but it's about something good. And so we want to mm-hmm. make, so it's, at first it was just a game about fighter pilots, but then it turns out that if they're insomniacs, the game's really cool. Right. <laughs> or, and sometimes that stuff comes out of a single conversation you have with someone, or you play at a convention with some stranger and they say a thing and they have this experience. And you're like, oh, that's what I want. I want that. Yeah. Right. And this, again, gets into to play testing and stuff, but listening to what people feel about the game, whether, whether the, if they have pain points with it or what they really love about it. And watching them as they play. Watching them as they play and then hearing what they like and then kind of not worrying about how they would fix it. Mm-hmm. There's two quick one-liners, so perhaps two two-liners, four lines in all <laughs> about this. Two couplets. Right. One is pay attention to what people do, not what they say. And the other is, I'm not sure how to phrase it. When people tell you what the problem is, they're almost always right. When people tell you what, how to fix it, they're almost always wrong. Right. Yeah. That's that's the other couplet that I, that I was having trouble putting together. And part of that has to do with, again, I think expectation. When somebody says, I had a problem, this wasn't fun. Mm-hmm. Then if you go, well, okay, great. So that's not good. But if somebody says, oh, I didn't know it was going to be this kind of fun. You could be like, well, then I'm going to okay. change the, how the game presents itself so right. that you buy it so that you know you're going to have that kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Because I know it does that. Right. Or the other way is, oh, well, I told you, like, you are correct that I told you this and you didn't get it. But that's because I messed up telling you. Right. Like, I messed up how I presented it because we did what I wanted. And the thing that you liked is what I wanted you to like. Right. But you're disappointed because I told you you get X. And that's not even, that's from three drafts ago. And it's just still on the sheet. And I wasn't really thinking about it. And so that happens, too. Understanding that playtesting is not the last thing you do. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky you do it, you're also doing it last to confirm what all the previous playtesting did. Right. But this kind of testing, how the, what is emerging and what is happening, and one of the reasons we keep com- coming up against or into the, the, the woods of playtesting on this is because after the first round of playtesting, I design a game. Right. I design a game, then I play test, and then I go, okay, now I now I have an idea of what kind of game I designed, mm-hmm. and now I can start drafting it into, into a combination of what it does and what I wanted it to do. Right. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing, because these are social games, because yeah. role-playing games are part of a social fabric, the emergent part is from the social interaction. And so you're guiding it with your rules, and you're shaping it. Uh, like we said, you're trying to push it towards certain ends. You're encouraging certain things right. and discouraging others. And certain kinds of games are very either very simple or very straightforward or have a, a very clear vision. And in that case, you they're, they're pretty you can kind of understand where they're gonna go. Some games are being created as an expression of a design viewpoint or or some other kind of thing. And it's kind of immaterial how it ends up actually playing because the point is for people to like read it and get what you're going for and bring it to the table in the first place. But I think the the vast majority of the time the rubber hits the road when the people actually play it. 
And that's where the emergence comes from. And that's why this keeps looping into when you play test, when you play test. And sometimes it can be hard to get play tests going. And that's difficult, but it's also, unfortunately, the best way to find out what your emergent properties are going to be. Where this speaks to my answer at the beginning is that I think you can design for emergence. And obviously, as a, as a designer, you should play your game enough to see what, what is emerging and then actually acknowledge and accept and embrace that. Um, whether that means making it so it no longer emerges or making it so that you to get the most out of that emergence. You, you can foster it, right? Foster you can, you, is a great you, you word. can kind of cup it with your hands and encourage it to grow. <laughs> cultivate it, yeah. Yeah, cultivate it is what you can do, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, um, what I mean is that you will always fail in the sense that something will always emerge that you did not foresee when your playtest group goes from however many people you were playtesting with to your entire audience, to everybody who will mm-hmm. ever play this game. Unforeseen things will always develop and emerge and come out of the game. If you stop it, a game may be so cold and dead that it is not a whole lot of fun or that it only has 30 minutes of fun in it, in which case you should know that and, and, right. and design for that. I think the essential point is that even though it's a very kind of goopy idea, it's hard to hard to pin down. You know, it, it's something that is very difficult kind of by definition to point at and say, I'm going to design for this emergent property. They're going to happen. And part of this, of the the ongoing building up your skill as a game designer is getting better and better at anticipating what's going to happen and then validating what is happening against your design goals and turning that into one of your core design loops. Learning how to make a game dynamic or flexible enough to absorb emergence without breaking down mm-hmm. is also, I think, really important. And in- including deciding from game to game whether or not your vision or your intention for the game has the kind of resilience or the kind of pliability that like it's one thing sometimes to maintain a game's strict nature and saying you know i I kept finding this emergent property was neat but it's not what the game is about and learning to to close off that loop Mm -hmm. so that that kind of emergence doesn't happen is is a valid choice it's a tough one but sometimes that'll happen too And, and, and making those choices those judgment calls are part of what being a designer is and sometimes it's just a different game Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving stars or a review at your favorite podcast dispensary. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. Find our complete back catalog of previous episodes, show notes, and ephemera at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...